We want you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to begin in verse number 8. We have quite a bit to uh, deal with this morning in these verses, so let's stand and jump on in for a seven-hour sermon. 1 Peter chapter 3. In verse number eight, the Holy Spirit says today, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or rivaling or for rivaling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you have been called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life or to see good and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, uh, those who revile you, uh, your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. But it's better to suffer for doing good if this should be the Lord's will than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience since through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, who with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You may be seated. How many of you have ever been stressed out before? Uh, The past couple of years... Uh, have been very stressful, have they not? Um, there was a survey that was done, and they said that 80% of Americans say that the past two years have been the most stressful years of their life. You have the COVID crisis, political and social unrest, financial instability, the moral revolution, and the deterioration of our society, not including normal life. Uh, a lot of you may feel overwhelmed, overcommitted, and overworked. We all try to cope with the difficulties of life, and and some of us do it in different ways. So some of us look backwards to the nostalgia of yesterday, wishing that we could turn back time to the good old days when our moms sang us to sleep, but now we're stressed out. Um, Others look to escapes like elaborate vacations, uh, expensive toys, or intoxicating substances, hoping to numb the pain or distract the mind. And yet, in escaping stress, it just brings stress with you. Uh, you can't uh, get rid of stress by leaving stress because stress follows you. It's, it's not so much what you do on your time off that will cure you. It's the problem is how you spend your time on. And so many people are just living their lives in quiet desperation, despair, fear, upset with God, thinking that God doesn't love them and doesn't care for them. But I want you to hear, and hopefully you've picked this up these past few weeks as we've been going through First Peter, is that a bad season or a stressful season does not mean that God's hand is against you. It may be God's way of showing that he is for you. Peter here is writing 
to encourage a tiny minority of people who were living in stressful days. They were Christians who refused to bow down to the gods and idols of their day, which put them at odds with the state and their neighbors. They were misunderstood. They were maligned. They were slandered. Many were slaves that had unjust masters, or many were spouses that had unbelieving spouses. And so Peter here is, is teaching them and us not only how to survive stressful days, but how can we thrive as exiles uh, in stressful uh, days of our lives. And so what you're going to see is that Peter is going to transition from talking about submission to authority to now dealing with suffering. And he's going to give us, I think, three foundational living principles, life-giving principles that will help us love life and see good days. And here's what they are, that we must, as Christians, choose love over hate, faith over fear, and we must choose to trust Jesus over everything. We must choose love over hate, faith over fear, and Jesus over everything. So let's just unpack that. First is we must choose love over hate. He says in verse eight, finally, all of you, Peter has been addressing citizens, servants, wives, husbands, and now he's talking to everybody in the church. He's saying, y'all, finally, y'all. He's addressing all believers and how they should relate not only to each other inside the church, but also to those outside of the church. And that's what we need for us as well, because we live in a world full of division, full of hate, full of distrust, full of confusion. The, the narrative of our day is us versus them. You are either with us or you are with them. And you, if you are with them, we don't like you. If you're with us, we like you. Well, the church today needs to be leading by loving, not by hating. We have to understand haters are always going to hate, but churches should not. People in the church should not be haters. And so he says, finally, you all, here's what you need to live like inside the church. He says, have unity of mind. Be like-minded. Well, Peter here commands this. And the reason why he commands this is because unity does not come naturally. The church is an interesting group of people. It is made up of people from different cultures, different colors, different perspectives, and different preferences. I mean, you think about our church. Our, our church has people uh, that literally uh, span the, the rainbow of ethnicities, cultures, perspective. We have people in different socioeconomic brackets. We have people in different uh, political ideology. We have people that are from different parts of the country. We have people from the Northeast, people from the South. Uh, people from the Midwest, people from the West, people from the Northwest, and, and some people don't even know where they're from, and people from all over the world. And so we are at First Baptist Church Naples, we are a collection of a lot of different people. Uh, but yet, as Dr. Tony Evans said, the unity of our community should reflect the diversity of eternity. In heaven, not everybody's going to look the same, not everybody's going to talk the same, not everybody's going to be the same, because God is not colorblind. God is color bold. God created us to be different because it's in our differences he can make us beautiful. But yet, to dwell above with those I love, that'll be just glory. But to dwell below with those I know, well, that's another story. And so living in the church with people from different 
backgrounds and different preferences and different perspectives can often create a tension, can often create conflict. Even within our church, we have sometimes this young versus old, contemporary versus classical, black versus white, and Democrat versus Republican, and rich versus poor. But I want you to get that Jesus and the apostles never envisioned the church as a place where everybody thought the same about everything. As one preacher said, do you know what they call a group of people who think the same on every issue? A cult. We're not a cult. We're the church of Jesus Christ. And what makes the church unique is that our unity in Christ is greater than any disunity we may have in the world. And so in a divided world, the world needs a united church. And our togetherness impacts our effectiveness. If we want to impact Southwest Florida and the nations for Jesus Christ, we got to be together because we're a whole lot better together than we are by ourselves. And so Peter says we need to have unity of mind. And then he kind of breaks down how that happens. It first happens by having sympathy. And this idea of sympathy is that you come alongside other people. You enter into the pain or the point of view of the other person. Normally, we like people to hear us. We want to be heard. Most people just want to be heard in life. But we need to listen to people. People will not care how much we know until we, till they know how much we care. That old cliche. But you're never going to know, and they're never going to know how much you care until you listen to them. So what we need here in our church and what we need in the world is, is we need the church of Jesus to look beyond the end of our nose, to, to look into others and to not only think about them from our point of view, but learn about them to not only hear what they say, but to feel what they feel. And here's what you got to get. You don't have to agree with everybody, but you can still care for everybody. We will never have unity of mind if we don't have sympathy for each other. But he also says brotherly love. We get our word Philadelphia from that word, Philadelphos. It means to care deeply, even more than yourself. Unity comes from brotherly love. And then he says a tender heart, a compassionate heart. The, the word there literally means from within the gut, deep within, pity from within the gut. It is a deep emotional feeling that is more than platitudes, bumper stickers, and well wishes. It is emotionally invested. And then he says, a humble mind. This understanding of unity of mind is only going to happen when we love each other with compassionate hearts and humility. You cannot have a unity in a church when you have a church filled with arrogant, self-centered, self-focused people. I've seen some people that call themselves Christians that can strut sitting down. But we'll never be what God wants us to be. We'll never treat each other the way God wants us to be treated until we get this posture of humility. That we are not meant to be served, but we are to serve. And so that's how we should deal. That's what means, it means to choose love over hate, is that I'm going to choose sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humility more than I'm going to choose getting my way when I want it, how I want it. But then he talks about those outside of the church. In verse 9, he says, do not repay evil for evil, insult for insult. Here he answers the question how we as believers should respond to those who hate us, those who mistreat us, those who hurt us. He says, do not 
repay them. Do not give them what they give you and what they gave you. And so Peter says, respond, don't react. When you react, it's just mirroring what the other person does. So if you're driving down on Livingston and somebody cuts you off and then you go behind them, honk your horn and cut them off, that is reacting. And I know because I've seen some of you do it. (laughs) Responding is different. Responding thinks ahead. Responding doesn't honk the horn when the horn's honked at you. Reacting is emotional. Responding is emotional intelligence. What Peter says is he says, on the contrary, instead of you giving them what they gave you, instead of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and and giving them back what they gave you, instead, bless them. Respond with a blessing. Don't react with a curse. Respond with a blessing. Why? Because this is how you've been called. This is the calling on every Christian's life to bless instead of curse. All throughout Peter's epistle, he's been talking about our calling. We are the elect exiles. We are called. And then he talks about how we have been called to a living hope. We have been called to live a holy life. We have been called out of darkness into marvelous life. We have been called to suffer unjustly. And now he tells us that we have been called to respond with a blessing rather than evil. Why? Because that's what it means to be a Christian. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because that's how Jesus lived and that's what Jesus taught. Jesus was a peacemaker. Jesus chose love. Jesus never insulted. Jesus never cursed. Jesus never ridiculed. He chose love. Martin Luther King Jr. said, I have decided to stick with love because hate is too great of a burden to bear. Love is the way of Christ, even in the midst of hate and even in the midst of hurt. Uh, the, the, the town that I just moved here from a few weeks ago, Sanford, uh, in Sanford, there's this old historic ball field called Celery Ball Field. Uh, I've been there. We've, I've even spoken there. There's a lot of interesting things that have happened. It's a historical stadium, but something you may not be aware about is that a guy named Jackie Robinson was supposed to have played baseball there, but instead he was ran out of town. He had to actually go play baseball in Daytona Beach because the people in the city of Sanford did not want an African-American baseball player playing on their field. Jackie Robinson, who wore that number 42, is the first African-American to break Major League Baseball's color barrier. We're in the midst of the World Series, and as you look at both the Braves and the Astros, uh, you can see the impact of Jackie Robinson. But it goes back also, not only to Jackie Robinson, but a, another man by the name of Branch Rickey, who was the president of the Brooklyn Dodgers, who was also a strong Christian. And he was looking for a player to break the color barrier. And as he was searching, he chose Jackie, not just because Jackie was a great athlete, but also because Jackie was a serious Bible-believing Christian. And so when Branch Rickey came to Robinson, here's an interaction that they had that was written down. Uh, Branch Rickey said, we can't fight our way through this, Jackie. We got no army. There's virtually nobody on our side, no owners, no umpires, very few newspaper men. And I'm afraid that many fans will be hostile. He says, I'm looking for a ball player with guts enough not to fight back. And Jackie Robinson had that guts, had those guts. And he played 10 seasons and he's in the Hall of Fame And God used him because he had the guts to not fight back. That's not being weak. 
It takes more strength to restrain than it does to react. But Peter tells us why we should be this way. He says that you may obtain a blessing. And then he quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16. And Peter says, if you want to live the blessed life, if you want to love life, if you want to see good days, this is how you're to live. Peter here is claiming the promises of God through the psalmist David. And in this psalm, the psalmist reminds us that the Lord sees what people do to you. The Lord sees what people say to you. The Lord sees how people act towards you. You are to keep your tongue from evil. You are to continue to do good. You are to continue to seek peace. And so Peter's conclusion from that part is that when you trust Jesus and respond like Jesus and live like Jesus, you'll have joy like Jesus. The reason why we don't have joy is because we're just as nasty as the world sometimes. But we're called to bless because we know there's something better coming. We are too blessed to hate others. And we can't live like this is the only thing we have. And I know for many of you, it is easy. Some of you this week are going to be tempted. You're going to see something on Facebook. Somebody's going to say something to you. You're going to watch something on TV. You're going to hear somebody gossip about you. And you're going to want to immediately knee-jerk reaction and react to them. And I'm telling you, don't react. Choose love. Your kids may say something. Your spouse may say something. Your coworker may say something. Your boss may say something. Don't react. Respond. Choose love. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. He says we must choose love over hate. Number two, we must choose faith over fear. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good? Answer, a lot of people. There's a lot of people that can harm you if you do good. Have you ever heard the saying, no good deed ever goes unpunished? Sometimes you feel like that in your life, right? I, I did good and I've helped people and then I get punished for it. But Peter's argument is, is, is deeper than that. The, the, the argument is really, who can really harm you? You know, the greatest threat in your life is fear. And it's the fear of losing. And so your greatest threat, your greatest fear is the fear of either A, losing your life, B, losing someone you love, or or C, uh, losing the things you possess. But in reality, if you are a Christian, can anyone or anything really harm you? He says in verse 14, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Listen, people can do what they want, but they can't take your blessing away. Jesus has won it. Nothing can stop it. And there's no way you're going to lose it. And so have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. Don't be stressed out because nothing can harm us, separate us, or keep us from what God has promised us in Jesus. And the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die. And guess what? You go to glory. Nick Ripkin, in his book, The Insanity of God, talks about Chinese Christians who are under persecution. And this is a normal scenario. And so as he's talking to house church leaders, they give him the following scenario of what their normal life is like. Uh, they say that the security police will often come to the house church and they'll knock on the door and they'll seek to find out who the owner of the house church is, who's the owner of the residence. And so they'll say to the owner, uh, you have to stop meeting or we'll confiscate your house. And so the property owner will say, do, do you want my house? If you do, you need to talk to Jesus because I gave my property to him. 
The police, not knowing what to say, will then say this. Well, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we'll get to you and we'll take your property and we'll throw your family out on the streets. And then that house church leader will say, well, then we'll just be free to trust God for shelter and to provide our daily bread. The police will be upset and they say, well, listen, if you keep saying that stuff, we'll beat you up. And then they look at him and say, well, then we'll just trust Jesus for our healing. The police will say, well, then if, if you do that, then we'll put you in prison. And the believer will say, oh, prison, good. I'll be free to preach the gospel to prisoners and set them free. And then we'll plant churches in prison and you'll pay for it. <laughs> The police will be so infuriated. They'll say, if you try to do that, then we will kill you. And the believers will reply, well, then we'll be free to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. <laughs> and they don't know what to do, so they shut the door and leave. <laughs> Seriously, what's the worst that can happen to you? Instead of having fear in your heart, Peter tells us what to have in our heart. He says, but in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Instead of fearing what people can do to you, out of the depths of your heart, honor Jesus as king. Treasure Jesus more than you treasure your life. Fear in our life comes when we put something other than God as Lord of our lives. When we have something that is bigger in our lives than God is in our lives. And so the question is not, are you afraid? The question is rather, does fear rule your heart or does Jesus rule your heart? Because if fear rules your heart, if something other than Jesus rules your heart, then you'll live in fear. And so do you love Jesus more than you love anything else? And he says, instead of having fear, choose faith. Set Christ as holy in your life, set apart. And then he says, always being ready Always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you. Now, if, you're, if you love apologetics, this is the apologetics verse because it uses that word apologia, that word defense, a defense for your faith. But Peter's logic here is that when you and I treasure Christ more than life, we have a hope that puts the world on notice. Just as you heard in Danielle's story, she has a hope that has put the world on notice, that maybe has put some of you on notice. That when the world sees our hopefulness in a world of hopelessness, when you go through suffering with hope, when you go through hell with unshakable joy, people are curious and they ask questions. And he says, when they ask questions, you are to give a defense. And he says, do it with gentleness and respect. And what he's t telling us is that there's a difference between giving a defense of your faith and being defensive about your faith. Most Christians, sadly, are very defensive and can be defensive and condescending and mean-spirited when they're asked questions about their faith because they think that someone asking a question about why they believe what they believe is actually an insult. But it's not an insult. You know what that is? It's an opportunity. Don't see someone asking you questions and maybe even being skeptical as an obstacle. See it as an opportunity to point them to Jesus. 
But when you and I are defensive, we're not looking for that. But here he says, don't be defensive, give a defense. And that is live a life that is so different that causes people to ask you questions and then be prepared to answer those questions in love without fear. Why? Because it doesn't matter how good you answer your questions. It doesn't matter how compelling your life is. If you answer people's questions like a jerk, you forfeit your witness. Screaming at people in Jesus's name doesn't convert anybody. Getting on social media and ranting and raving and cutting people down will not see anyone get saved. How many of you, when you see somebody's rant on Facebook, get so convicted that you change your entire life to follow whatever that ranting person says on Facebook? Not very many. My fear, church, is that we may win the argument and lose the audience. We are to be fearless with, with boldness, but we aren't to be jerks. And this fearlessness comes from hope. To the degree that you and I walk with the Lord is the degree that we share the Lord with others without fear. And so if Jesus is in your heart, he's going to come out your mouth. And so effective evangelism comes from living a life that provokes people to ask questions. And so the thing that I would say to all of us is that when is the last time someone has asked you of the reason of joy and hope in your life? When's the last time someone said, you know what? You are so nice. You are so happy. You are so generous. You are so forgiving. You are so kind. Why is that? When's the last time you've had someone ask you that question? Sadly, I think a lot of us, very few of us, get asked those questions about our hope because we act just as hopeless as the rest of the world. We are not kind. We are not happy. We are not generous. We are not forgiving. And here's what you got to get, church, that if we talk poorly about each other in here, if we run our mouths about each other in here, then no wonder no one out there is going to ask us a question about what's in here. Peter says, it is better to suffer for doing good than doing evil. Suffering does not mean that you've done something wrong or that God is out of control. Often it's God's will for your life. And therefore, we have to get rid of this notion that if you are a Christian, everything gets easier. I believe in my life, and maybe many of you could testify that in reality, life becomes more difficult. And therefore, church, we must teach our kids to expect suffering in this life because if we don't, then they're going to believe God doesn't love them. And in those moments of suffering, even for doing what is good, we have to choose faith over fear. We have to choose that I'm going to trust God even though I don't understand God. And so... Choose love over hate, faith over fear, and trust Jesus over everything. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. Here he's talking about this idea of suffering. Well, what did Christ suffer for? He didn't suffer for doing bad. He suffered for the opposite. He suffered for doing very good. He lived a perfect, obedient, loving, joy-filled, generous life. And guess what he got? The cross. And so... He says, Christ also suffered. So you're suffering for doing good, 
But Christ suffered for doing really good. Notice here, once for sins. And I, I, this is, I want you to pick up something. How, let me ask you this question. How many times did Jesus Christ die on the cross? It's not rhetorical. How many times? Once. His death was sufficient for all your sins. So the question is, how many times do you need to be saved? Why? Because what he did was enough. For Christ once suffered for sins. He's not going back on the cross. So if you've got a cross around your neck that's still got Jesus on it, it's fiction. He's off the cross. He's out the grave and he's in heaven. For Christ also suffered once for sin. That just kind of hit me, and I thought you needed to hear it. Um, the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus in my place. I'm guilty. He's innocent. He, the innocent, sinless one, died for the guilty, sinful one. He didn't suffer for his sins. He suffered for my sins. Why? So that he would bring us to God. Jen Wilkins says that we should be willing to suffer unjustly because Christ was willing to suffer unjustly to bring us to God. It was through his death we get life. Through his suffering we get salvation. And so it's his suffering that was a pathway to glory. So you read this text, for Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And then he says it's being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. So now let's continue, verse 19, in which Jesus went, okay, he. So either, we'll, we'll get there in a second, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Now, some of you are like, Pastor, I was with you the whole time until you just read that verse and I don't have a clue what you just said. Well, good. Because this is probably the most confusing passage of Scripture, one of the most confusing passages of Scripture in the New Testament. Martin Luther, the great theologian, if you ever heard of him, he nailed 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, I think 500 and some odd years ago today. And so you can celebrate Reformation Day by nailing something on a door, okay? Just not a glass door. Don't do it. You'll only do it once. But Martin Luther said on this commentary on 1 Peter, he says, I do not know for certainty what Peter means. <laughs> Thank you, Martin Luther. There are potentially multiple meetings here. Or two, there are potential, potential meanings here. I'm going to give you two of what this is talking about. One is this. Is it, all right, so he raised from the dead. He was made alive in the spirit. And then some believe that it's, it's after Jesus rose from the dead, he went and proclaimed victory to demons who had been at work in the days of Noah were bound up for final judgment. Christ descended into hell, proclaimed victory to them so that they would know that Christ is victorious. So that's one meaning of what that's all about there. 
There's another meaning here. And this is from Augustine, from other scholars today, that says that what he's getting at here is that Peter has in his mind that Jesus was raised again by the Spirit, and so he talks about the Spirit of Christ. There's some other verses I can give you and show you too where Peter talks about the Spirit of Christ speaking through people. And so some scholars say that this is saying that Christ through the Spirit was preaching through Noah to people in his generation. And so just as Jesus, through the Spirit, spoke through Noah to that disobedient generation. He is now preaching and speaking through us to our generation. And so Noah preached 120 years. No one listened, but God's word came to pass. So Peter is saying, you're preaching God's word. You're sharing the gospel. You're suffering for it. Don't be discouraged, even if they don't listen to you, because God's word's going to come to pass. Now, you're saying, preacher, which, where do you take this? I typically go to the latter, but I can see both. I had somebody come to me and say, I believe in both, preacher. Okay, it's all right. If Martin Luther don't know, who am I, okay? But when you go to passages of Scripture that are uncertain, it's uncertain, instead of focusing on what you don't know, let's focus on what you do know. And so if you go in a little bit deeper into this passage, Peter has in view the days of Noah. So for some reason, the days of Noah has rattled in his brain. And, and as he's thinking about the days of Noah, there was all these people in the world and there was eight people and only these eight people believed God and the rest didn't. And so there were these few faithful people. And then he says here that they were saved through water despite the judgment of God. So God's going to flood the earth with water and he's going to judge the people, but yet he's going to save his people, those eight people through the ark of God. And so what, what Peter has in mind is he's writing to a church that felt small. They felt threatened. And so he wants them to take heart because God can save his people, no matter how massive the opposition or how scary the situation. I mean, if God can just save eight people and the rest of the world is against them, then he can save you. And so now you get to verse 21 and you think, well, okay, we kind of figure out 19 and 20, but now we get to 21 and Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. And you say, say what? Baptism saves. Well, let me just dive a little deeper here. Peter is going to even say, it's not the water that saves you. It's not the physical water. He, he says it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. It, but he also doesn't say it's, it's not, it doesn't remove sin from the soul. What, what baptism is, it's a picture of how God saves us. Just like, just like marriage and wedding rings are a symbol of marriage, but they're not the marriage, so baptism is a symbol of salvation. It's not salvation. Baptism pictures our salvation from the floodwaters of God's judgment through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so he's not saying that you got to get baptized to go to heaven. He's saying that when you are baptized, you are picturing you are going to heaven because in baptism, it pictures that you were dead in trespasses and sin, but in your relationship with Jesus, you are raised like Jesus into new life. And so when you witness a baptism, they, that, when, when they get in that water, there's no magic in that water. And there's no sin floating around in that water. They are picturing the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
And so listen, religion will not save you. Rituals will not save you. Preachers won't save you. A priest won't save you. Baptism doesn't save you. Only Jesus through his resurrection saves you. But in case you're not sure, let's go to the scholar Tom Schreiner and hear what he says. He says, the water of baptism, like the waters of the flood, demonstrate that destruction is at hand. Okay? But believers are rescued from these waters in that they were baptized with Christ, who has also emerged from the waters of death through his resurrection. Just as Noah was delivered through the stormy waters of the flood, believers have been saved through the stormy waters of baptism by virtue of Christ's triumph over death. What's Peter's point? I'm sure you're asking. Here's his point. God can save his people from any situation because he's already saved us from the worst situation, which is hell for eternity. So if God can save you from hell, he can help you hack it on Monday. If God can save you from hell, he can help you find a job. If God can save you from hell, he can save your marriage. If God can save you from hell, he can do anything that he wants to do in your life. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is what guarantees our hope that Jesus is Lord over everything. That's what he says here, is it's through the resurrection of Jesus. You're not saved through baptism. You're saved through the resurrection of Jesus, who's gone into heaven, is at the right hand of God, and has the angels, authorities, and powers subjected to him. The reason they are subjected to him is because he has overcome all of them. So Peter's point is that Jesus is victorious. Just like God won in the days of Noah, when everyone thought Noah was a fool, so Jesus keeps winning today. And Jesus keeps winning, and he never stops winning, and he never will stop winning. And so you live for him. Peter says, just live for him. Share him with others. Keep your hope alive, because even when the world feels like it's falling apart, it's actually falling into place. How do I know that? How does anybody know that? Here's how we know that. Because death couldn't hold him. The veil was tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin and grave. The heavens are roaring the praise of his glory, for he was raised to life again. He has no rivals. He has no equals. Now and forevermore, he reigns. For his is the kingdom, and his is the power, and his is the glory forever. Amen. So Peter is saying, listen, church, you can love life and you can see good days even in a world that is stressful. How could he say that? Because he lived it. He lived it. In Luke 22... You may not be familiar with this, but in Luke 22, Peter was stressed out. Jesus, the man who, who Peter had abandoned everything for, who he thought was going to be the Messiah, was arrested, stood trial, and was sentenced to be crucified. Instead of Peter being bold for Jesus, Peter denies Jesus three times. Peter thought his life was hopeless. Peter chose hate over love. When he was asked, are you a follower of Jesus? He cussed out a little girl. 
Instead of choosing faith over fear, he chose fear over faith because he went into hiding. And and instead of seeing and trusting that Jesus was over everything, he thought Jesus was finished. Fast forward. Acts chapter 4. Peter is arrested for healing a man, and he preaches the gospel. And the same Jewish leaders who had arrested Jesus arrested him. And he stood before the same Jewish council that Jesus had stood before. And that Jewish council was asking him, why are you acting this way? Why are you saying these things? Why are you living like this? And instead of hate and instead of fear, he gave them the reason of hope. And so in Acts chapter 4, verse 10, here's what Peter says. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, by Jesus, this man, the guy I just healed, stands before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and has become the cornerstone. Then he says this. And there is no salvation in anyone else. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Only Jesus did this. And they looked at this guy. And they wanted to know why would you say this? And then look at Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, that boldness, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were hicks from the sticks. They were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What happened between Luke 22 and Acts chapter 4? You know what happened? The resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Jesus' resurrection gave Peter a reason for hope. Jesus made the difference. Peter felt a whole lot better after his court appearance in Acts chapter 4 than Jesus' court appearance in Luke 22 because Jesus made the difference. Jesus was the reason for his hope, the reason you can live tomorrow, the reason you can live today is because Jesus is alive. Do you have this hope. If you don't, you can have it today. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Do you have this hope in you? If you don't, today you can. And I want to give you an opportunity. So will you bow your head, close your eyes? I'm going to pray. And while I'm praying, if you are hearing me online and watching me online or you're here in this room and you say, Pastor, I don't know if I have a relationship with Jesus. I don't have this hope.
that Danielle talked about in her video. Would today be the day you give your life to Jesus? And maybe you would pray a prayer like this. If you're here and you want to trust Jesus as Savior, would you maybe pray a prayer like this? Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I have done things my way. I've not followed your way. But I believe, Jesus, you died on the cross, and I believe that you rose from the dead, and today I give you my life. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. I ask that you save me from myself. And God, I'm not looking for a feeling, but I'm trusting in you. Father, forgive me. Save me today. Father, in Jesus' name, for those who maybe prayed a prayer like this, in faith called out to you, would you give them the boldness to make it public? Would you give them boldness to make it known? And Father, would you help us to go out in this week in the highways and hedges and share with others the hope we have in you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's sing about this living hope.